We serve an incredible God. He's so merciful to us. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word this evening? And then turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We'll be reading Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. I have truly enjoyed my time with you, although it has been short. I wish it could be longer. But thank you so much for the love that you've shown to us thus far, and I, I am humbled to be here with you tonight. If you found your place in God's word, you say amen. amen. All right. Verse 1. The word of the Lord says this, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, there is none like or compared unto Thee. You alone are God. And Lord, we desire that You would meet with us tonight. And I know that You already have. And I just pray, Lord God, that You continue to do so. Lord God, that You bless the reading and preaching of Your Word. That we might be, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, convicted of righteousness, of judgment, and of sin. And Lord God, that we would be obedient to the things that we hear tonight, that we might be more conformed into the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I think I can speak for most missionaries when I say that we all have certain heroes, heroes of the faith, whether it be men like the Apostle Paul, or more current men such as uh, William Carey, or Dr. Livingston. In particular, I hold a man in very high esteem named Adoniram Judson. He was the very first missionary sent from America's shores. He was sent out as a Congregationalist, but he arrived in, in uh, India a Baptist. Uh, convicted over what the Bible said about biblical baptism. Adoniram Judson lived from 1788 to 1850 and was a missionary to Burma for almost 40 years. And now there are over 6,000 congregations, Baptist congregations, that can trace their heritage to Adoniram Judson. 
Before he left for the mission field, he fell in love with a young lady named Anne Hasseltine. And knowing that he wanted to marry her, and also knowing the hardships that were awaiting them on the mission field, he wrote Anne's father a letter asking for her hand in marriage with those realities in mind. He wrote this, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, and persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior, from heathen saved through her means, from eternal woe and despair? Now that's a letter of proposal. Adonai Judson's letter to Mr. Hasseltine was fulfilled and did go through many hardships while on the mission field. She had three pregnancies. The first ended in a miscarriage while moving from India to Burma. Her second child, Roger, was born in 1815 and died at eight months of age. Her third child, Maria, lived only six months after Anne herself died of smallpox in 1826. Adonaim Judson himself lost two wives and six of his 13 children on the mission field. Anne and Adonaim suffered through many other trials, serving as missionaries. Anne herself suffered hardships and died. But she died for the sake of him who left, her heavenly, who left his heavenly home, as her husband had written earlier. In 2005, May 5th, 14 years ago today, I set foot in Kathmandu, Nepal. I had a love for my fellow man, but I'll be honest with you, I did not want to see them burn in hell's flames. Who does? But like the old fundamentalist preacher, missionary, missionary and preacher, Paris Reedhead, If I was honest, I went to Nepal to improve upon the justice of God. Did you know that it would be just of God to send sinners to hell? That is just. And my primary motivation 14 years ago, if I'll be honest, was their happiness. And the good feeling that would come from seeing them happy. After my first term in Nepal, I came to the conclusion that my dear Nepali people, who I love, they were like us. They were filled with more wickedness and iniquity than I'd ever imagined. You know, you, you, you know that movie uh, that came out 
years ago, I think at Monsters, Inc. I don't know if you ever saw that. You know, they come into Nepal, and it says, quiet, peaceful Nepal, you know. That's kind of what I thought. I was wrong. They love their sin, they love their idols, and their blasphemous way of life. They didn't want my Jesus, and especially if it meant to the exclusion of their sin, or the forsaking of their idols, false gods, their family, their friends, and their countrymen. Romans 1.32 says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, and not only do the, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So when I returned home for my first furlough, and I looked at our ministry in comparison to those around us, I, I saw reports of my, my fellow graduates from Heartland that were souls were just pouring in and being saved in other places. I was discouraged. But through seeking the Lord's face and searching the scriptures and seeking godly counsel of my pastor, I began to reevaluate some of my motivations for being a missionary and for really my entire service in serving him. Reasons. I pray that the things that I learned through trial by fire that you might glean from this evening. And so I would ask us to go to the first and greatest of all missionaries, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's see his motivation and mission. Let's see why he died. Let's look on, upon his cross. What is the main motive of the redemptive work of the servant of the Lord and the proclamation of that work among the nations by his ministers? That's us. Well, you might say, that's easy. He came to this world to die for sinners because he loves us, and yes, he does. Hallelujah, yes, he does. 100% he loves us, for God so loved the world. Certainly he does not desire for man to go to hell. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. And in Jude 22, and some having compassion, making a difference. So we know for sure that Christ came to this earth because he loved mankind. And he did not desire to see them in hell. And that's very palatable to me as a human. I like that a lot. I do. But there's another side to it. There's a greater and actually a deeper reason for why Christ came. And for why God sent his son. A reason that will eliminate utilitarianism. What is that? The if it works, do it. When we step outside of God's word because we want to attract people. It will eliminate that. Eliminates humanism out of our Christianity. God primarily orchestrated the redemption 
of man for the glory of his name. And that may sound arrogant to you, and it might sound arrogant to me. Well, yes, for a sinful being, yes, that would be arrogant. But he is the one whose name is holy. In our passage in Isaiah, we look at it in its context. If we look at it, it moves from the prophecy of a deliverance of Israel from Babylon and the Chaldeans in chapter 48. And it goes on to prophecy of the servant of the Lord in chapter 49. The servant of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose title is given in verse 3. In this passage, Christ personifies Israel, meaning he is representing and making Israel as becoming a person in this passage. When Israel had failed as a servant of the Lord, now Christ becomes the true Israelite, as he does in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it's recorded, when Israel was a child, then I loved him. See, there is a personification of Israel there. I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. He is, see, that is what Jesus is in this passage. He's personifying Israel. And he is the greatest servant that has ever lived, has ever been. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And now he is a servant to the nations. And let's hear his call to the nations in verse 1. It says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He calls to the isles, and those from far to hearken. He calls to the Nepali people, to the Sri Lankan people. He calls to the people here in Kansas. He truly is a servant to the nations. He's calling them to hearken, to listen up. No other man can claim to be who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the door, the vine, the resurrection, and the life. He said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And now here by the spirit of prophecy cries unto the nations. As we should proclaim. As we should cry unto the nations. The servant of the Lord has been born. He's been born. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 says, From the rising of the sun and even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. We also see the servant's birth in verse 1. He was called from the womb, from the bowels of his mother. God mentioned his name. Jesus. In Nepali, we say, Yesu, Muktidatta, Savior. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So from eternity past, and then confirmed by his birth, Christ was sanctified, that means he was set apart to be the servant of the Lord. In verse 3 it says, 
that said unto me, Thou art my servant. Verse 5, formed me from the womb, what? To be his servant. And in verse 2, we see the mouth of the servant of the Lord is what? It's like a sharp sword. Verse 2 says, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's the word of God. The servant of the Lord is to proclaim the word of God. The word of the Lord. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus came proclaiming the word of God. In verse 2 it says, In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. Christ coming as the Lord's servant was as a sword hidden for attack to be taken out at the appointed time. Remember, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. You see, he spoke with authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke with the authority of his heavenly Father, the Word of God. That same verse in verse 2, it says, It made me a polished shaft. Well, what is that? It says, In his quiver hath he hid me. Well, what is a shaft in a quiver? That's an arrow, okay? Well, it's a polished arrow. Well, something to be shiny, what do you have to do to it? You have to first polish it. You polish an arrow so that it might fly through the air quickly. Christ, the servant of God, was prepared for his mission from eternity past. He had eternal knowledge of you. He had eternal knowledge of me. And he came knowing what he was going to have to do. Christ, the servant of God, was prepared for his mission. And this shows us a picture of Christ, the servant of the Lord, through his word. Reaching to the isles, to the far places like Nepal and India and Sri Lanka. Places of this world to the nations. Just as an arrow, when shot from its bow, is meant to hit the target from a distance. The word of God is to go to the ends of the earth. And we as servants of God should be shot forth from the bow of God to land fixed in the hearts of the nations so that they might fear our God, that they might hear of Him, and that they might turn to Him for the glory of His name. And that's what you do here. You all are arrows shot forth into your community. Verse 3. Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be what? Glorified. Glorified. Here I reiterate that Christ is personifying Israel, the perfect Israelite and the true servant of the Lord. And for which purpose has he been sent? To glorify God to bring him glory and honor, 
And that is the same purpose for which Christ sent out his disciples. Remember, we cannot separate Christ and his church. We are a picture of his body. And we are commanded to do all things for the glory of God. And so when you go as, as the Sunday school class that I had the privilege of sitting in this morning, they're talking about this morning about how would you engage in conversations of drawing people under Christ and pointing them towards Christ. And the reason why you go out and do that is because you love people, but the greatest reason that why you do that is because it's pleasing and glorifying to God. Because... I can tell you this, there will be a time when you will be shut down. Meaning, you'll go out and you'll be engaging people in conversations and you'll be praying for someone and hoping that they're going to come to the Lord. Boom, closed door. Stiff arm. Get out of my life, I don't want to hear you anymore. And if you're not there because you're being obedient and you want God to get the glory out of their life and you want God to be glorified, the next time you'll have reason and pause. Say, I don't know. You remember the last time I just got shut down? Why say it again? Well, the reason is it's because He's worthy. He's worthy. Why did God choose to have mercy on Israel and deliver them from Babylon and later deliver them and us from our sins? Isaiah 48 verses 9 and 11. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. For my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. For mine own sake and even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. And he alone is worthy of such glory. He alone is worthy of such obedience. For he is the Holy One. But man has rejected him as his servant. Verse 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with me, is with the Lord. Sorry, my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. Israel crucified their own Messiah. And at first it appears that his labor of his earthly ministry might have been in vain, but it wasn't. He rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and he is in heaven today, and he is not wringing his hands, wondering how this work is going to get done. And he's not wringing and saying, I wonder how I'm going to get fin this finished, because he knows that the judgment is with God. He knows that his work is completed, and he knows that that work will do a work in our heart. And when we are obedient unto that, he will receive glory. Verses 5 and 6. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. 
And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. That's us. That's me. That's you. We're the Gentiles that he allowed to have light. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen tonight? We have light because he loved us. And he wanted to see his name glorified. It says this. He says that I will give thee for a light unto Gentiles. Why? That thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And so he continues his work through us for the glory of his name among the nations. Why do we need for people to take up their crosses and follow? Because billions are on their way to hell's flames for all eternity, yes. But for more than that, we need missions because in this world, man has the idea that God exists for them and not we for God. Because the glory of God is not honored. The greatness of God is not admired. If you were to go into Nepal, let me just paint you a picture tonight. Five, five minutes walk from our church. There's a stupa called Swayambhu. It's a Buddhist temple. And encompasses a whole mountain. And the painted eyes of Buddha are on the top of this golden spire at the top of the mountain. And they gaze out over the city in this kind of glazed look. Have you ever seen a druggie that just has no connection with the earth around them? No real idea of what pain is? That's what the eyes of Buddha look like on that temple. And below that gaze of that idol, these people walk in circles around that temple each morning, bloodying their knees and their elbows. One man I watched intently for many days, and he would bow himself prostrate on the ground. And one day when his elbow was bleeding, bleeding profusely, I came up to him and I talked to him and I said, you don't have to bleed anymore. There's one who bled for you. He mocked me. He turned away. Later on, I saw him laying out in front of these steps going up to the mountain of that Buddha. And they covered him with cow dung. They put little candles and they lit that on fire. And he sat there laying in that heat and stench from morning till night. He died just a little ways later. Why do we need missions? Because man would rather do that than glorify God. But we need missions because God can take a man in the same condition. A young man named Sobi grew up on the mountain that opposes this mountain, and he would walk, get out of his house each morning, 
And he'd bow to those idol, that idol in the Buddha's, Buddha's eyes in the morning, each morning before he'd go. But more, one morning he decided not to bow. And he walked down with his cousin to the base of the mountain and he heard singing in our church. And he came and he heard for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he came back again and again. And he got saved. And he got changed. Not by his own work, but by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit and his word. And now he's our pastoral intern. And prayerfully we'll turn it over to him, the church over to him this next term. Why do we need missions? Because the glory of God is not honored. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. And the beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The presence of God is not prized. And the person of God is not loved. That is why we need people to take up their crosses and follow Him. Because the infinite, glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist, the one under whose authority this world rests, is at this very moment being dishonored, being mocked, ignored, and minimalized amongst the nations of the world. That's why we go. And that's why we stay. Because what God does is he takes a man for whom he shed his blood. He takes an idolater like Sobeet, like you and me, and he remakes us. He reforms us so that we might fulfill the purpose for which we were made. That's what missions is about. Because at the end, he gets glory out of a life changed. And as Ephesians tell us, that the work of the church is that. We go to the intent that the principalities and powers, that is the angels that can't quite understand all of this, they look down and they see once a sinful, wicked man or woman changed into the image of Christ and they say, our God is wise. That's why we go. That's what missions is about. Would you stand with me, heads bowed and eyes closed?